On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we are out on the water with Nicola Walker and breaking the fourth wall in her marine homicide drama, Annika on Alibi, uh, checking into a wellness clinic with Nicole Kidman in Nine Perfect Strangers on Amazon and exploring a bell-end-rich environment with Sky Atlantic in satirical comedy drama, The White Lotus, which features an extreme close-up of Steve Zahn's cock and balls. <laughs> I'm James Spoiler. Dyer. Welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, a show upon which I'm joined by esteemed co-host Terry White and Boyd Hilton just to get introductions out of the way early doors because the show this week needs to address a grave injustice. You will, of course, remember last week's listener question where one listener wanted to know who our ideal partners, TV partners, were. And Boyd and I kind of half arsedly (laughs) reeled off a couple of names while Terry brought a PowerPoint presentation. So it occurred in hindsight that there was a proper dearth of sci-fi and or genre entries on my list, including my beloved Aaron Sun from Farscape, who definitely should have been on there, and is basically the whole reason I love that show. Uh, also, Seven of Nine, Jadzia Dax, definitely the sexiest old man on Deep Space Nine, uh, Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica, because obviously, although she would definitely be on the absolutely would, but she'd be very bad for me list, like Terry's one. Uh, see also from that list, Faith the Evil Slayer from Buffy, Annie Anchor the Vengeance Demon, and uh, Demon Meg from early supernatural there hopefully uh, addressed the balance somewhat with that what a great intro i mean, well, I, can't, I, yeah. honestly, I, mean. Like, I can't believe you've been stewing on this for a week <laughs> well, i mean I, just, I, I felt i can yeah i mean it's just i was like oh my god no i forgot aronson what was i thinking like that was a bit claudia black and farscape was something else like that's and you watch Farscape. You remember Aronson, don't you, Terry? I'm sure I made you watch a few episodes of it. Uh, you, you definitely made me watch Fire Escape at some point, and I <laughs> couldn't tell you who who is Berrickson. Berrickson? Who's Berrickson? Peacekeeper officer Aronson. She's, oh. you know, black leather, you know, badass. No? Not, not feeling it? Badass. Oh, <laughs> men like you say badass about yeah, women with any, kind of, any kind of personality. I mean, it's less the personality and more the kind of fully automatic plasma rifle is the reason I was saying it. But, you know, sure. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Okay. Well, let's move on from the introduction to what we've been watching, a segment we are now retitling Why James is Always Right and Terry Should Simply Pass All Her Viewing Scheduling Over to Me. Because while you are all doubtless sick to the back teeth of me banging on about Friday Night Lights on a weekly basis, it is now time for Terry to do it. Because out of nowhere, Terry, you took a trip to Dillon, Texas this week, didn't you? <laughs> My God. Yes, I did, James. Um, So, so So, um, yeah, look, I was, do you know what? There's a lot of change happening in my life at the moment. As people probably know, I'm I'm leaving Empire and Pilot in two weeks, two weeks today. And my son was having his taster sessions at nursery for the first time ever this week. And there's just when I talked about this on the pod before, when there is kind of upheaval or I'm going through things or I'm feeling anxious, there are certain TV shows I like to watch because I find it very comforting. Usually Law and Order SVU. But also the West Wing, as we know, when we talked about the West Wing, serves that function, makes me feel calm and warm and loved. Now, I was going to rock. So I tweeted about rewatching the West Wing because I had a lot of stress going on this week. And I was like, I need something just to soothe my soul. And somebody came back and just said, just watch Friday Night Lights already. And I was like, you know what? 
like you've banged on about it every day since we met, it feels like. And we have talked about misogyny before and quite a few people on Twitter have kind of emphasised quite strongly that they think I'm missing a trick by not watching it. So I was like, do you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to watch the pilot episode and see how I feel. And it's funny because I... For the first 20 minutes, I was like, meh, I mean, you know, some because it's it, A, it's quite jarring, the style of it, because the mm. shaky, I mean, shaky, shaky, shaky tat. I was like, shot like a documentary. There's the to camera stuff in that first episode. And you kind of don't really meet the characters properly. So you're thrown straight into a game and you don't know who you're meant to be rooting for or why. And then obviously um, there's the incident. I mean, I don't want to do any spoilers at all because I was fresh to the entire thing. But obviously something very dramatic happens in the first episode, which essentially sets up so much of what comes after. But I, as after that moment, so 20 minutes in, I was just absolutely obsessed with this show i've now watched what was it last night so i've i've been watching them in the middle of the night i've been watching them at, <laughs> literally at the crack of dawn whenever i can basically squeeze in a five minutes and i think i'm up to like because this is the same as west wing with 20 odd episodes a season right well first season yeah yeah mm. so i'm i think i'm about episode 11 or 12 oh, okay. so i've i've gone Deep. I've gone deep, deep, deep. And Coach, I mean... Oh, Eric Taylor. He is just... And he he is it for me. He is it for me. You know, I've got other thoughts on other characters because I was texting you angry. Now, um, now you, are you throwing out last week's Wood date list and just replacing everyone with Eric um, Taylor? Oh, my God. He's just incredible and and his relationship with his wife connie britain's amazing like they mm. have such chemistry it's like mm. insane chemistry isn't it and it's such a great depiction of what a real marriage looks like like there's, there's like post-coital scenes where they've clearly just had really good sex and then <laughs> Two minutes later, he's being really irritating and saying something he shouldn't, <laughs> and then she's frustrated. Like it's just brilliant on the small moments that make yeah. up a relationship, and those small moments like make it so realistic. I'm so invested in them. I mean, I'm pretty much invested in in all of them. Um, and you know what? I've got my feelings on Lila, mm. um, who just needs to shut the fuck up occasionally. Yes. Um, I just love it and I love the warmth of it and I love like, you know, what it says about class, what it says about masculinity, what it says about traditional femininity, small town life, like about aspirations and dreams and the toxicity of some of that sport world, but how it can be certain people's only chance of any kind of life other than the one they've been born into. I just think it's like... All of it's fascinating to me. I love it. I am so thankful I began it. And if you are one of the people who told me on social media just to fucking <laughs> get on with it already, I thank you heartily. And yes, yes, James, I even <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jerry. I will, I will accept I will accept this minor victory. <laughs> I, I no, did I, say explicitly this would not be seen as a victory I by mean, you. And it I is stand though, by isn't that. it? It is though, isn't it? Let's also, be honest. I've been saying it's, but I, I've been saying it as well. I mean, as well. Yeah. So, you know, we can there share is that. the victory. I'm happy to I'm share the victory the with victory, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we can totally do that. No, it's amazing. I love that idea, that sort of, which just seems to me a very American sort of high school sports thing, that idea of kind of an inverted life arc where your life peaks as yeah. a teenager and then it's in steady decline from the moment 
moment you graduate because they're essentially rock stars at mm. 16, 17, 18, and then go on to have like dead end jobs the rest of their lives. And it's like the, your whole life is about regress. Because yeah. they say about age, they say that when your memories outnumber your dreams, like mm. that's when you're old. But that for them happens before they're 20. Like that's it's yeah. awful. But it's like, I always think that one of the brilliant things about Romy and Michelle, right? I always think that nails that syndrome really well, which is broadly speaking, the kids at school who got the piss ripped out of them and had a dreadful time go on to have mm. quite successful lives. And actually the people who were, you know, people who peak at 17, their entire life, they're, they're haunted essentially by having everything at their feet and being the center of the universe for this really small window and then you spend the rest of your life in the knowledge that you will never ever be that person again and life as you say is just about regrets at that point i mean mm. it's tragic isn't it it is so that's been your week of tv has there been anything else I'm literally no. I've been obsessed. Good. Like, I approve obsessed. wholeheartedly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, Boyd is still judging you quietly for having given up on the leftovers, but other than um, that, a bit, yeah. But <laughs> I'm sad about that. Yeah, I am sad about that. But I love Friday Night Lights. Friday Night Lights is definitely easier easier to get into. It's it's just it's yeah. Just, yeah. But it, but it is yeah. brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And you know everything you said is is so true. If when when you you know, I lived in America for a year at a, a, a college, and the college, the college football sports situation yeah. is astonishing. There's a, like 17,000-seater stadium at UMass Amherst, where I was, for the college football team, and it was people obsessed. And, and then you see in the high school, in the high school context, it is absolutely incredible, extraordinary, all the words I usually use. It feels like a cultural... Yeah. Focus, isn't it? In America, oh, sport completely. is seen in such a different light. Like when you think about high school, a, any high school, whether it be football, tennis, anything, any high school football event or school football event, can you imagine anyone other than the parents ever going to no. see it in this country? No, absolutely, oh like, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. And the parents probably don't yeah. want to be there. They're yeah. chatting there on their phone and stuff. Whereas it's like in America, it's a religion. Like they're yeah. obsessed with sport. Yeah. But entire towns and entire schools are funded essentially yeah. by football, and that's yeah. why it's the centre of everything because it really is like people. A, rely on it to escape, but also it brings in money for that community. It's the focal point for the entire community. And it's why, you know, we've seen in various documentaries, for example, the hunting ground one being um, the most notable is is that leads to the culture where football players have traditionally basically got away with whatever they wanted to Mm -hmm. because they were the people who actually if you don't have those people that stops that money coming in that stops x y and z all the wider opportunities for the community and the dangers of that um but yeah in those small towns it can be literally Mm. everything well last chance you last chance you on netflix is all about Mm. that That, and that is a really that is i mean that is astonishing Um, all of the series of that are, are, are completely underlined that whole point yeah and can I just say Matt, like Matt's, I mean, oh, Matt obviously, because, you know, he's working class and has obviously like issues with confidence and, and he doesn't kind of subscribe to that more traditional view of masculinity and the relationship with his nana oh. um, and his dad. I mean, oh, all of it is like... But- Zach Guilford plays that so well because like, he's always yeah. stuttering. He's so unsure yeah. of himself and it's so natural. It's uh, he, I think he's genius. Yeah, his physical movements and his speech when he's around girls in particular. Yes. So Julie, the scenes yes. with Julie where he lit, <laughs> to your point, James, and it's so and it's such a deliberate thing in his performance but so brilliantly done mm. is he always slightly stammers or stutters and he can't look directly at her. Like, he fucking nails it. 
His, well, I rewatched the first episode. I was like, because if when, when I knew you'd uh, you were watching it, and and um, he, he, even in that first episode when he has to take over, you know, and the coach is like breathe, telling him to breathe, his acting yeah. in that is absolutely. I'm saying absolutely, mm-hmm. he fucking mm-hmm. nails it so well. Yeah, uh, I didn't He's forget. You, you remember how good they are. That the casting. I mean, the casting of that show. So many people many, in this. You're yeah, like, how you many wonder- have gone on? Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. I mean, he's become essentially the most visible, hasn't he? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But it's it's you know again as, as I said before, like I find it astonishing given how good Taylor Kitsch is in that as Riggins, like how he no, no, hasn't no, 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 become no. the biggest thing yeah. ever, and yet here we are. Yeah. What's happened to him? Uh, he did True Detective. Obviously, mm. that was post Battleship and uh, John. But didn't John Carter lose like two hundred million dollars? Yeah. or something? It's like one of the yeah. most famous flops in history. But it's not his fault. Like it's not like you can't lay that at his feet. Funnily enough, I knew I I, I checked up on it. He's got a big HBO show coming up in which he's the lead role. Um, Good. So he's yeah. He's, he's still he's still very much. Let's with get us. him on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Talk I about mean, Tim Riggins. Hopefully we can. Yeah. 100%. Anyway, I <laughs> apart from rewatching the first episode to remind myself of what was so great about Friday Night Lights. I have been watching a show called Flatbush Misdemeanors that started, that arrived this week, well, as, as last week on Sky, uh, Sky Comedy, which we should have really reviewed, but it was a busy week, I think. Um, and it is a, a comedy mostly, and James would find it probably excruciating. But this is a, um, it's a Showtime show. It stars Kevin Iso and Dan Perlman. They're like two friends who are... Um, one of them is a teacher, and by the way, this depiction of teaching is so much better. Teaching in a public high school in America is so much better than that Joseph Gordon-Levitt show. I think mm. that you know was was partly about that. This depiction of it is absolute, feels absolutely so authentic. And his mate, who is a um, would want to be an artist, a painter, but obviously needs money. They're both desperate. For, they both desperately need money to live. And he spends his time as a courier, um, delivering food and stuff. And he and the whole thing starts off with him. Um, accidentally delivering delivering something to some druggy, you know, kind of gangster, small-time gangstery types and making a mistake and causing him to have to owe them huge amounts of money. That is, and it's like a kind of series-long caper where he has to kind of make amends for this with these horrendous small-town, small-time criminals whilst maintaining this kind of bro, but very, very beautifully drawn friendship between these two blokes. Um it's it's like a kind of bit mumble core, like they're both a bit mumbly, the, the the performers in a way. But it's really funny and witty and and clever, and it just takes you in really unexpected areas. Um, I think it's really really good, and um, it, it it's uh it's all on Sky. The whole first series, ten episodes on Sky. Flatbush misdemeanors. It's great. Flatbush misdemeanors. Interesting. But what have you been watching, James? Uh, I, that's a good point. Oh, what have I been watching? I mean, I've been watching, let's be honest, pretty much Friday Night Lights exclusively. Uh, I'm, I'm halfway through season three at the moment. But uh, more important than that is what I haven't been watching. And it's something that I have had brought to my attention. And that is that the first four episodes of Isaac Asimov Adaptation Foundation is oh, on yeah. the Apple portal. Now, I haven't watched it yet. And even if I had watched it, I wouldn't be able to talk about it. But that is my weekend, let me tell you. And I am psyched. Hard sci-fi, spanning millennials. Yeah, yep. nothing could be more me if it tried. That's true. Um, I'm very excited, and I hope I, it doesn't let you I'm, down. I'm looking looking forward to that enormously. Yes, I hope it doesn't as well. I had to watch. You'll be pleased to know I had to watch the first episode of C, um, so I could write yes. about it. Yeah, in in heat, and that was an interesting experience. <laughs> to reacquaint well, myself we with the world about of that. C, we will be yes. talking about it soon. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh yes, yes, yes. The what greatest a show of shows. Right. Let's move on then to the listener question. And this week's listener question comes from Zoe Schneeweiss. And she 
asks, can a role ruin an actor for you? Handmaid's Tale means I can't rewatch anything with Joseph Fiennes in it. Similarly, a friend of mine saw Matt Damon in The Talented Mr. Ripley and now refuses anything he's in. So, who is now damaged goods after having played a bellend on television? Can I just say that refusing to watch Matt Damon is quite a thing to choose to do, considering <laughs> yeah. how many, you know... Yeah, it seems various, harsh. I mean, that is harsh, considering I mean, yeah. the variety of roles mm. and his general all-round quality in, in roles, I would say. You know, like, with all the characters to pick to, to, to boycott for a role in, in, frankly, a really good role in, in a really good film. Anyway, um, I found this quite difficult. And then I had, a, I had two m- revelation, revelation moments. I was just thinking, who? I mean, really, this is partly actors you find irritating, isn't it? And can't really watch for various reasons. Um, so one of mine is one of mine is the immensely talented, but I think now quite irritating, and he hasn't done much recently. Mike Myers, Mike Myers, when he did when in, I think he wrote like Austin Powers, right? The first one. I thought very funny when he brought in, um, you know, Fat Bastard, the character of Fat mm-hmm. Bastard. I was like, that ruined it for me, and I can bear that character horrendously unfunny and ruined that whole series for me, that whole franchise. And that I kind of find it difficult to watch him <laughs> subsequently after that. Um, and he hasn't done that much. He kind of, and then he did the Love Guru, which is one of the worst films ever made. And I just find I do find it quite difficult to, and, if, and he's like a kind of the opposite of a draw for me. I know he doesn't do much, but every now and then he'll pop up in a guest role. He was in Bohemian Rhapsody. This is a bit of a film answer. But I've noticed. Does, yes, but Saturday Night Live is what made him famous. That's the excuse. Yes. Saturday Night Live. I see, Saturday okay, Night that's Live. What we're this on. Saturday yeah. Night Live years. He was a brilliant talent. So my point is, he was amazing in that period. You know, and he created Wayne's World and all of that. That film worked quite well. But he's great in the film Fifty Four. But I find it difficult to watch him in. Because he because he ruined it by doing some terrible characters, particularly uh, fat bastard in Austin, that Austin Powers film. And then the other one that's, that occurred to me was I was thinking of of, a, of the of the the example of the questioner, which was evil. I guess characters that are so nasty and horrible that they kind of put you off. And the only one that I could think of that's ever happened to you that way is um, Ramsay Bolton in Game of Thrones. Yeah, he that was you and Rion. He is fucking horrible. Obviously, and does a mm. really good job of playing. But of, be, of, of just how horrible and nasty he was, torturing people, cutting their penises off, this, that, the other, um, and just being an absolute all-round 100% C-U-N-T. That, and he, I, I do, there is something about him that does kind of irritate me just because of his kind of great performance in that role. Because he was really fun in Misfits. Yeah. And, you know, you felt really quite warm towards him. And then when he appeared in this, so a lot of people came fans would say, like Jack Leeson, who played Joffrey. But oh, I yeah, wonder, no. for mm. me, certainly it's sexual violence that alienates me from from actors. Like, because after that Sansa rape scene, I've not been able to look at Ewan Rian in anything. And I feel a bit the same way about James Norton, who's a great actor. But after mm. playing Tommy Lee Royce in Happy Valley, I really struggle with him in anything other than a kind of villainous role. Um, so he was in The Nevers as well. And I yeah. really I really struggled with him in that because of that. But but I don't have that problem with Jack Gleason. I don't have the problem with Lena Headey for playing Cersei. You know, anything no, like neither. that. But no, I think it's no. a very specific type of yes. sexual violence that makes it difficult. And I think, so Handmaid's Tale, speaking to the original question's point, you know, Joseph finds people from that. I'm sure, Terry, you've got some from, from that one that you'd share. But yeah, I find that hard to get past. Yeah, and I, I think I interpreted it slightly different, which is, character actors I love and how much I struggle with them in roles that I don't like if you see what I mean so Bradley Whitford obviously I watched him in Handmaid's Tale before I ever saw him in the West Wing 
then I so I kind of had the hump with him from the beginning, but then fell madly in love with him in The West Wing because Josh is one of the greatest characters in TV history. And now I've gone back to Handmaid's Tale. I'm finding it really hard because he's sullying the the feelings I have mm. for Josh, and I and I find it really hard to watch him as a bad guy. And I'm starting to feel weird sympathy for him and think like, oh, he doesn't mean like he doesn't mean what he says because in my head, he's like Josh is sat there. And do you know what? There was an episode recently where he was sitting in a chair the same way that Josh used to sit in a chair in the West Wing. And it properly spun me out. I was like, I can't handle this. I can't handle it. Like, I, I can't keep watching him be horrible. Obviously, I did then keep watching him be horrible. The other one is actually David Tennant, right? So before he was in Doctor Who, David Tennant did this um, drama where he was like an abusive guy in a relationship yeah so he's in this thing called secret smile and he was a proper proper wrongan and i like had to really put that performance out because he was brilliant at being manipulative and deceitful and vile and evil and obviously the doctor much like um joshy in the west wing the doc well maybe not like joshy in the west wing <laughs> The Doctor is all that's right and good and brilliant and he is the 10th Doctor and he is the best Doctor. And I remember it came up at some point either on a streaming service or something and I was like, I cannot watch that because once I form a certain attachment to an actor, I don't like that to be ruined at all by, by you know, stomping on my feelings with a performance of usually an evil man. Yeah. So I had a very specific take on this question that I just wanted to get out there. <laughs> I think that is actually what the question was getting at. To be fair, I think that I think I think that is exactly what. Yeah, I think your your answer is is more. It what is funny how you at. transpose feelings towards a character onto actors. It's just like mm. you know, I don't know if, if Terry, did you ever watch True Blood? Doesn't strike me as a very Terry show. I tried but, a couple of times, but well, Alexander Skarsgård, Eric Northburn, yes. like you really rooted for him all the way through that. But again, since Big Little Lies, I've like, that's <gasps> yeah. really that's a great one. Yeah, that's you know, great one. I struggle with him a yeah. lot since that. Yeah. It's really difficult. And the amount of people like Ben Barnes said he used to get abused on like the tube and stuff after doing Westworld. Like people, like people get quite cross about these things. But then I think if a character actor or an actor has an innate likability, they can override it to an extent. So Jeffrey Dean Morgan, for example, like played Negan that scene like loads of people stop walking dead when he does the baseball bat scene it's really horrific torturing murdering people but because there's something just inherently likable about jeffrey dean morgan i have no grudge against him whatsoever <laughs> oh stephen graham right so stephen Ooh. graham in this is england the film mm, mm. he's an awful racist violent thug you know at the end of the film he attacks somebody very violently and in the TV show, he's kind of redeemed in a lot of ways. And it's funny because you, I really struggled with it. Because Compo initially is your archetypal skinhead white racist from the 80s. And he absolutely kind of is quite a type in that sense. And, and I really struggled with Stephen Graham for a while, especially after seeing the film. The TV show then kind of rehabilitates him, sees him reject his past racist behaviour, 
making kind of deliberate attempts to improve as a person and he he does certain things that to try and make up for the sins of his past mm. but Stephen Graham like he he played him during his bad days really like I mean that man you believe every performance that man puts in um and I definitely went through a phase of being like I can't watch Stephen Graham in anything because he's that evil guy um but you know Shane Meadows then over Mm. years completely rehabilitated or tried to as much as possible rehabilitate that character I had a really weird experience with um do you remember series three of Broadchurch Mm. when there was um this character a, 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 a rapist and sex offender um, that they had to investigate, who was in the vicinity of, lived in the area. And, and he was played by Jim Howick. And I know Jim Howick because, you know, pretty well. He's a, he's a comed, mainly a comedy actor. He's in horrible histories in Ghosts at the moment. And he's the, he's the guy um, who used to be the scout with the arrow through his head in Ghosts. And he's, a love, he's one of the nicest men in acting. He's a Spurs fan, but we'll, we'll let that go. And he was cast brilliantly against type as this nasty, horrible, kind of cocky sex offender in Broadchurch. I remember being very difficult to come to terms with that. That was weird. That was really so weird. But he did a brilliant job. But it was just bizarre, yeah, to see him in that role. Well, hopefully, Zoe, that answered your question. If you have a question for us, then please do send it via DM to at Pilot TV Pod. Let's move on now to news. What's been happening in news, Terry? In fact, let me tell you what's been happening in news. And I'll tell you this. I am packing my bags and heading off to Poland. Why, James? Why, you ask? Because I've just discovered there is an actual witcher school. This is absolutely true. In Poland, where you can go and learn to be a witcher in a kind of LARPing capacity. You familiar with LARPing, Terry? You strike me as someone who LARPs. Are you all right, James? <laughs> like a little episode. <laughs> I'm a LARPing episode. First of all, you were talking to yourself. Like you were I going, mean, James, I mean, yeah. I mean, fine. <laughs> I'm practicing for after Terry's left. Yeah. Um, oh, God. So LARPing is live action role playing. And I remember this from university. Like, at university, if you used to go onto campus in the weekends, you'd see like random people running around dressed up as orcs and knights and wizards and stuff with like big papier mache swords, like twatting each other with them. And it, you did that slight double take, like, what the hell is going on here? But this is the thing that people do LARPing where they dress up it's not cosplay it's like proper you know role play like we are you know Magnar the barbarian king and I shall slay the orc hordes who are running around the arts faculty that kind of stuff but anyway if you want to take that to the next level go to Poland and join this witcher school and be trained as a witcher Terry I think you should do that I'm all right, thanks. Okay, any other news? <laughs> um, Lord of the Rings uh, TV series that's been yes. shooting for about 83 years is <laughs> coming to the UK, apparently. So they've wrapped in New Zealand. Um, they will be here, I think, they're saying at the start of next year for pre-production of season two. And so this, a lot of the headlines for this pitched it as the show abandoning New Zealand and coming to the UK instead. Or is it just actually we've done the location shoots down under, and, we're now shooting. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. Isn't it just like it normally is, which is we were on location in New Zealand and presumably they're going to be doing studio-based stuff here, um, I would expect. I mean, or, or maybe not, maybe outdoor. But it isn't unusual for a TV show or a major film to shoot in multiple countries. But the way it's being reported, you'd think we'd won, that there had been a third world war, specifically about Lord <laughs> of the Rings, and we'd somehow won. Yeah, because it has been reported, I was trying to get to, it has been reported in some places saying um, that from season two, it's moving on to the UK. Yeah. But actually, if you read the fine detail, that's not, I don't think they have said that. Yeah, I think they've said 
Well, we finished filming in New Zealand for season one. Now production is moving to the UK. That's pretty much all, that, all, all they've said, as far as I, make, I can make out. But anyway, yeah. I did sit behind, in, uh, behind uh, Lord of the Rings actor yesterday when I went to see Constellations with Russell Tovey, let me just say. Uh, really? Mm. Who was it, boys? It, it was. It was. Let's, let's um, not be coy. So, was it the Witch King? Was it the um, Mouth of Sauron? No. Um, it was the guy who was in Years and Years with Russell. It's Maxim Borgi. Do you remember Maxim Borgi? Who was, who was his Ukrainian boyfriend refugee, Russell's mm, in, Yes, in, indeed. Yeah, so I sat, sat um, behind him. We had a little chat and he said, I said, you've been making Lord of the Rings. He went, yes, for the last 10 months in New Zealand. Yeah. Mm. Um, and now we're moving to the UK, boy. Let me give you an exclusive. <laughs> he did say that. Yeah. But he is in the UK now. I think he's got a really, really major role in it. I get the, I get the, mm. I think, I'm pretty sure. Going off last week's glowing what if review that we put out on this very podcast, you'll be excited <laughs> to hear that uh, Marvel Studios has announced multiple new animated series are in the works. Woo! So that's uh, that's something to look forward to. Yeah, we should. We always apologise about our our um, animated, animation bias, our yeah. lack of excitement about animation. Yeah. Should we say at the very least? But yeah, I mean, maybe when Terry goes, we should replace her with like an animated oh. Terry to kind of you know. Well, but also, can I just point out that you know we have fans of animation on. Empire, and I think they they fell where we fell. So the official Empire review was a uh, kind of a recommendation ish from Ben Travis. To ish, yeah. That's ish. true. That's very true. We were not alone. Talking of Marvel, though, I think we should mention the, what Russell T Davis said. Which, in fact, Terry um, texted us. What nine perfect WhatsApp strangers group. are led of balls? Is that? We'll get <laughs> that, to that, that particularly. Oh, right, no, okay. we'll get to that later. No, <laughs> Russell T Davis at an event, a Q and A event he did this week, talked about Loki. And the um, the revelation in Loki that he the character was bisexual, which um, the director was very proud about. We talked about it, I think, on this podcast. We mentioned it when we reviewed it, etc. But Russell T. Davis at an event um, talked about how um, it was not good enough just to have one tiny little reference. Uh, I'm going to read you that reference, a yeah. bleak reference. And Terry texted us this to say, you know, he's right, and I totally agree. But what it really made me think, and this is the power of Russell T. Davis, he is so he, 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 his thinking, he has a clarity of thought and an eloquence and a no bullshit, and a, a kind of bullshit detector that is so sharp that sometimes, because I went along with the ride about, about that moment in Loki, revealing the characters of the show, oh, that's great, that's brilliant, and celebrated the fact, kind of, you know, in, in, in a review of it and on this podcast. But Rusty Davis is quite right. As he said, um, the character's sexuality is not discussed at all after the one word in that scene he says one reference to being bisexual once and everyone's like oh my god it's like a pansexual show it's like one <laughs> word he said the word prince and we meant to go thank you disney aren't you marvelous it's a ridiculous craven feeble gesture towards the vital politics and the stories that should be told and he's absolutely right and i think we, you know, we're so pathetically grateful, aren't we, when some, <laughs> when the, the people who own the world, let's face it practically, <laughs> Disney and Marvel, do that kind of thing. And I think it is, it's, and I, it just made me kind of almost ashamed of being so cravenly thankful that that little yeah. morsel of, you know, sexuality diversity was, was, was given to us. Yeah, I mean, he's so fucking right. I know, and it's, it's funny because to your point, Boyd, I, I felt the same as you, which you were like, finally, this has mm. been recognised. This is so great for people who can finally see themselves reflected and represented and, and all. Of, and then as soon as I read it, I felt a bit chastened, yeah, actually, definitely. because I thought, 
Well, God, of course, because there's no story being told. There's no either struggle or joy or whichever story this is to tell. None of that is being told in any way. And he's, I think he's right when he called it a gesture because it was like, okay, we'll go this far, mm. which actually is one tiny step, but we won't go any further than that. And and I, I felt, especially for somebody who is so important in the telling of LGBTQ stories, he... He must have found it incredibly frustrating, I'm sure, but also he's, he's very aware of what what a small step relatively it is when you're not engaging with it properly. And yep. yeah, I've, it, it made me stop and think, actually. Um, I, I exactly. thought it was a exactly. really fair thing to yeah. say. Yeah, and he brought when he brought Captain Jack into Doctor Who, a bisexual character into Doctor Who, played by Jack Bowman. He that in pretty much every appearance that he made, it certainly you were reminded of his of his sexuality, and you know, jokingly or whatever. But it was that was that was that's how to do it. Basically, he knows what mm. the fuck he's doing when he you know when he did mm. that. This you know, there's no no major LGBTQ plus as you say characters really that ever that ever gets dealt with in, at all in any of this stuff, and. Yeah, Loki doesn't really add to it at all with that one word in that show. I think when it happened, it was that for Disney, it feels like, oh, it's a step in the right direction, albeit a baby step, that they are starting to broaden out and actually acknowledge these sort of aspects of representation, you know, because they're taking steps towards race representation and LGBTQ stuff has been a little bit further behind. Um, but yeah, obviously, it's funny, like when Russell mentioned like that, of course, it was an incredibly sort of timid, almost embarrassingly, almost embarrassed you know acknowledgement on it and and you know i love that they did it and i'm sure that it was done in the only way that they were allowed to do it and the way that kate heron was able to get it made but then yeah but why, that is but, yeah, the point but then, yeah, yeah but then why, the why yeah. yeah i think that that's the bit nobody was saying which is you know it's great that she was able to do that but what it's not shameful it's not illegal it's not do you know what I mean? Like the the very yeah. fact that it's oh well, you can do it in this small way mm. that implies, and in fact, that yeah, there's some, it, that there's something right. wrong and in about fact, they, it. That they, it's they spent the rest of the fucking series with him flirting with a female version of himself. Like that was there, that went on and on, you know, weirdly. But the whole fucking but, I mean, how much this does speak to the somewhat regressive audiences that they want to make sure they're going the to exclude. Point. which is They have to yeah, bring the aggressive yeah. audience into the light of the 2021 and, you know, yeah. fucking reality. But it's, but that, it's you know, they're looking, I mean, obviously conservative America is a big part of that, but beyond that, it's foreign markets, isn't it? You know, they're looking at sort of like China and whatnot right, where they, it's problematic sort of- for them. I, I agree with you. They, you know, I, I agree 100%. They should be doing this whatever, but it's the power of the dollar, isn't it? That's all they're seeing. They think, how can we make this as palatable as possible to as many regressive audiences as possible? Well, but not doing anything controversial. But how? Can, but that's the and that's the entire point, which is how can it be controversial? How can it be controversial in twenty twenty one to show a gay or bisexual character? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Absolute lunacy. Yeah. And, if and in fact, bit- here we are. And yet, but it's is you know one of the richest companies in the world should be able to you know deal with the fact that they might lose some business in China or whatever if they do this. Mm. You know, that's that's the point. They have the power. If anyone has the power, Disney has the power deal with this stuff that's that's the thing but i think it what it does is it it, it reduces everybody's expectations and i mm, think that's where we yeah. all ended up in we all went woo this is like the biggest thing ever like you know we've we had the same conversation about star wars with that kind of <laughs> tokenistic thing at the end right like 
not even a kiss. And so it's just you your expectations shrink to such an extent that we don't expect their stories to be told. It's fine as long as they're acknowledged. Oh, but we don't expect their stories to be told or mm. to be told properly or to be told from this perspective, like, oh, we're right here going, wow, they acknowledged He's, it's canon that he's bisexual, but what does that mean? Because uh, it, I mm. presume we're not going to see him actually in a relationship with a man because, oh, that would be too far because that would be too controversial. But by Asaplo's placating a regressive audience, you have to take a regressive stance, which then means you are making other people regressive. Do you see what I mean? Like it's a... Yeah. And, 100%, and, yeah. That, and basically it needs people like Russell T. Davis to be right in this work, to be showrunning yeah. these things. For, for, yeah. for that change to happen as well. But I mean, also to call them out on it and, you know, fair yeah, play to them, 100%. Exactly. Now then, did anyone see, has anyone seen the trailer for Impeachment, American Crime Story? No, I saw it a drop, but I haven't seen it. Oh, Are you excited? M-G. First of all, I am incredibly <laughs> excited. Um, I love the whole, the American Crime Story, the O.J. Simpson ones, I often say is one of the greatest things, one of the greatest series um, ever. And I love the Gian Versace one as well. I'm absolutely massively looking forward to this telling the story of um, Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton and Linda Tripp. So Sarah Paulson plays Linda Tripp, Benny Feldstein plays Monica Lewinsky. And so in the trailer, this is the first time you've seen them in these roles. They're all brilliant. Edie Falco as Hillary Clinton. Amazing. But the fucking big one is Clive fucking Owen as Bill Clinton, right? And I have issues. I'm sorry. We only we see a glimpse of him. Um, and there's a little glimpse of him on the news where he's about to say, I did not have sex with that woman, that legend, famous m moment. But it's Clive Owen doing his Clive Owen -y voice. It's not Bill Clinton. It's, it's going to be really distracting, I think. You know how, you know what was that? There was a series where we saw someone play Trump, Donald Trump. It was... Um, Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, right. I thought they did a brilliant job with that. Mm. I thought they did an absolutely brilliant job. Obviously, massive latex makeup effects, all, all of that. But from what I can see from the glimpses of of Russell, of Clive Owens, Bill Clinton, it is a weird way of casting, and I'm not sure they're going to pull it off. But I'll reserve full judgment till I see the whole thing. But yeah, I have I have worries about it. A trailer that did drop actually last week before we did last week's podcast, we should actually talk about was the Why the Last Man trailer. Did you guys see that? Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, thoughts. Um, it looked quite a downer. That's that was my main thought. I mean, I mean every man on earth dies. So for you a downer for Terry, feel good comedy hit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it, so I can't comment. <laughs> I mean, it does feel right up your alley thematically, at least, Terry. Um, but yeah, it's it's good. It's just it's such a good comic series. Oh, good. Well, yeah, also good to see amazing. ampersand the surviving capuchin monkey as well. Amazing. I see, so Terry, so everyone, every male on earth dies mm -hmm. except for one man called Yorick Brown and his capuchin monkey called ampersand. Wow. So he, they are the only males left. On Earth. Good. Although I will say, also the footage of it, the footage of the thing, I don't know how you'll say this, there's a, there's a scene where all the men drop dead and then obviously line of succession, someone's become present. I can't remember exactly what her role is beforehand. There's a bit like where they're like, oh, like, oh, the power's going to go out. And she's like, where? And they're like, everywhere. And it's a bit like, what are we going to do? So there's a sense of them all looking really lost without men to make things happen, which I thought, I know it's taken out of context as a trailer. I'm sure the scene isn't actually shot that way at all. But I thought a bit like, hmm, okay. <laughs> This is yeah. this is a look. <laughs> I, I thought I, I, I agree, but isn't the interesting thing about the series though? We should say is that the whole thing is run by women, isn't it? The actual show, it as is. Well. Yes, so which is why I think it's it's yeah. slightly out of context. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it is very yeah. interesting. 
Why the Last Man then? So we'll get to see that one next month. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Terry, you, you'll watch it and tell us what you think. I'm going to get you to send in occasional like like texts and I'm just yeah, going to read right. them out on the show. Terry has watched Why the Last Man and would like you to know the following. Absolutely not. <laughs> Any other news? For example, that Catherine Zeta-Jones will be playing Morticia oh, yeah. Adams in Netflix's Wednesday series. So I've got to tell you, like I wasn't sure how I felt about this. But the more I sit with it, the more I think it actually might work. Mm. I think, you know, I I think she's often underrated and she's very good at kind of quite extreme characters. I think she can she can really morph herself into stuff and she's got a weird she's just got this weird edge to her. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's something about Definitely. her that's just a bit weird. Um, so actually, because I think a lot of people were moaning as, you know, the internet tends to do. I was thinking, I think this could really work. Yeah, I agree. I'm fully in favour of it. Yeah, I think it, it's great casting. Yeah. She was in that Coen Brothers film, wasn't she, where she did a she did a really like larger than life kind of over the top mm. character. Oh, yes. Intolerable cruelty. Intolerable cruelty. Mm. I thought she was really good in that. Yeah. It was a slightly irritating film, but. It was a very irritating film. All right, right. a very irritating film, yeah. But she was great at it. I would say the last piece of news we have this week dovetails neatly into the review section, and it is that The White Lotus has been renewed for season two. So let's get on to reviews and begin exactly there with Mike White's The White Lotus, a six-part series in which a group of rich bellends go to an exclusive Hawaiian resort staffed largely by bellends and run by a colossal bellend. The show stars Tammy Taylor herself, Connie Britton, who does a magnificent job of playing a bellend, and Steve Zahn, who goes one step further and shows off his actual bellend. Now... We know Boyd gave this one five stars in Empire, but Boyd, let's hear, what did you make of The White Lotus? Well, part of the reason I gave it five stars in Empire is, so I'm assuming, James, that you've watched the first episode and that you don't intend to watch any more, and that's that because it's so (laughs) full of balance. That would be an accurate summary. I mean, you are nothing if not predictable. Uh, And I knew, (laughs) as I was watching it, as literally after about 10 minutes of watching the first episode, I was thinking to myself, I know what James is going to think of this thing, and the word Belen is going to be used throughout and he's right they are mostly balanced i would again i would i think you have to differentiate that part of the whole point of this show is that it's a very it's a social satire it's digging into the reality of the of the service industry and of these luxury hotel resort type places particularly specifically and i think you have to differentiate between the much put upon staff who have to deal with the fucking belendery of these Mm. privileged mostly white super rich fucking VIP shitheads who are bellends indeed and the staff themselves who have to deal with this shit particularly as you say Armand who's the manager played by Murray Bartlett who is I think phenomenal who is in Looking he's very good Sectel City and he played guest rarely in Looking you played an American in San Francisco alongside Toby etc he is using his authentic Australian accent and he <laughs> is a hilarious you know, he's got his staff and um, there's a brilliant little twist in the first episode with one member of staff who, who, who um, has her issues, shall we say. I won't, I won't remember that. Um, but he tells the staff how to deal with these VIPs as they arrive. They have to have their fixed grin. They have to not give too much of themselves. They don't have to have too much of a personality. They have to subsume themselves to the whims of these grown-up chi- children who effectively want the time of their lives in this um, luxurious resort in Hawaii. And the characters include Jennifer Coolidge, the legendary Jennifer Coolidge as Tanya McQuoid, who is troubled, her mum's died. She's got the ashes, carrying the ashes of her mother 
in a plastic bag and she wants to um, deal with that, deal with the ashes of her mother. That's why she's there. You've got um, uh, Connie Britton, who is this kind of like powerful businesswoman who's a huge success. And she's got her um, teenage daughter and her, and her son there with her teenage daughter's best mate. And the two teenagers, I think, are are brilliantly uh, performed. Um, Sydney Sweeney. <laughs> Uh, and who's the other one? Um, Brittany O'Grady. Their dialogue, their banter, they just sit there observing these wankers in front of them and commenting on them, commenting on how their behaviour. Um, Jake Lacey is this super rich real estate agent. Actually, his parents, his mum's paying for everything and he's on honeymoon with his wife, Rachel, um, and she played by Alexandra Daddario. She's a journalist who in later episodes is revealed, does tries to do profile um, profile interviews to people and isn't that good at them. And there's lots of stuff about journalism and that that's there. And he is a he is the biggest Melinda of all, I think, safe to say. <laughs> yes, and his he entire his entire storyline and his entire relationship <laughs> and his entire um, subplot of the show revolves around the fact that he thought he was going to be in the honeymoon suite and he isn't in the honeymoon suite. He doesn't think he's in the honeymoon suite and he's fucking furious and he has to deal with it all the way through. And Armand, the, the guy in charge, has to deal with him, the man-child, and his poor wife kind of slowly dawns on her that she's married to one of the biggest bellends you could possibly meet. So you meet these characters... Um, uh, uh, Mike White, who's written, directed, produced it, it's everything. He um, kind of gives, gives the characters time to breathe, but at the same time, he does drop in the first scene the fact that someone dies. So I usually find the whole someone's died thing, some often, you know, it's a bit facile. It's, it's an obvious way to get the narrative going. To, but he kind of drops that whole thing, frankly. And you kind of forget that someone's died pretty much after the first five minutes where you're informed of that fact until later on in the fifth or sixth episode. So I've seen the whole series. And that's, and again, going back to why I gave it five stars, because you have to see the whole thing to appreciate the brilliance of this show. That becomes much more of an issue towards the, right towards the end of it. But as it goes along, he gives, you get to know these characters who start off as being fairly one-dimensional, maybe you, know, you think they are, but they become, all of them, even the massive bellends, hmm. fully realised, brilliantly drawn characters with, I think the dialogue is spot on, is, is hilarious. There's a whole discussion about Hillary Clinton around dinner, about how, you know, this privileged, rich white woman loves her. She's very important to a lot of us. She says, well, her teenage daughter and her mate are like slagging her off, talking about how, Hillary, you know, how, Hillary, how, how privileged the figure Hillary Clinton is. It's, I thought it was one of the sharpest, most interesting, uh, genuinely has a kind of anger at the, at the, at the, at the, in the spine of it at the way people get treated by rich, wealthy, privileged people and at what it really means for people who have to deal with them. It made me feel at the end of it, genuinely, having watched the whole thing, I've, I, I started to think about, will I ever, ever be able to enjoy a luxury holiday ever again? Because I've been on fucking... I've been oh, to boy, you like are this. the real victim here. I, I think mean, we I can all agree. I am the real victim here, you know. But it's that... But I, I say that to show how powerful it is to make you think about... It really made me think about something that I think you often take for granted in these situations. And by the way, not only do you get, as you've said, the close-up of the cock and balls, if, if the boldness of it is summed up by that moment in episode one when Steve Zahn's character think he might have testicular cancer and um, Connie Britton has to inspect his cock and balls and there's a close-up of it. Then there's a moment, I think, in episode four when Murray Bartlett's character gets so het up and it, it's like a kind of evolving snowball of anger and fury at the people he has to deal with and it all comes tumbling out and the climax of the episode is one of the most incredible scenes 
I've seen in a long, long time, is all I'll say about that. And they're all the way through, they're genuinely spectacularly bold moments. And I know you use the word bold, bold all the time, and I apologize. <laughs> and people put me up on it on Twitter quite rightly. It is my go to word. But this is genuinely one of the boldest takes on this kind of world and these types of characters. And I hail Mike White. I've always been, I think he's a, I've always been fascinated by stuff going back to Chuck and Buck, which was a really bold film. They started the thing that made him famous to start with. I think he has a really interesting, genuinely, as I say, sharp satirical take on this stuff. I absolutely fucking loved it. Forget the fact that they are bell ends. It is a real and and, but, and it's fantastically entertaining anyway as well. But above and beyond everything else, can I give you a Murray Bartlett fact? Yes, please do. Not only. Is he in The Last of Us as Frank? Oh, he wow. was in Farscape as DK. Oh, my God. Yes. Brilliant. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Sorry, Terry. So I've only watched episode one, and I didn't... Initially, I just didn't know what to make of it, because kind of as Boyd says, you get this immediate death. There's, there's a body being wheeled onto the plane, and I thought that's what it's going to be about. It's going to essentially be a who done it. That gets cobbed out of the window really quickly. The rest of the episode is well, I don't know how I'd describe it. I know people are saying like social satire or black comedy or whatever, but I couldn't think of anything it was really like. But it it's actually weirdly, even though it's dealing with massive stuff, right? So privilege, gender, sex, class, race feminism, toxic masculinity, it's dealing with all of the big issues of today. It just doesn't ever feel like it. Like it's genuinely really fucking funny. The performances are amazing. Murray Bartlett, I agree, is just incredible. Jake Lacey, I think, is always massively underrated. Mm. I think he's like absolutely brilliant. Like he was brilliant in Girls. I don't think people even remember he was in Girls, but I think he's really great at a certain type of millennial man. And the details in this episode for me is what make it you know the fact he's reading Malcolm Gladwell's blink do you know I'm like it's the the attention to the detail of how these characters are drawn even though they're kind of types I think is brilliant Jennifer Coolidge is obviously an absolute (laughs) titan um the writing is brilliant so but it is it's not what I expected I wasn't immediately grabbed but I'm kind of now massively intrigued um, I'm definitely going to keep going to Boyd's point. I wish I'd have watched more in one big chunk because it feels like just the first episode mm. absolutely isn't enough. But from what I've seen so far, it feels like a bit of a Trojan horse of a series, which seems almost superficial and light and funny and biting and all of those things, but is actually doing something uh, much more interesting underneath. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a really good show. I, I mean, I've got a lot of time for upstairs, downstairs things. I mean, I mean, my love for Downton Abbey is well documented. And this has a lot of that to it, the absurdity of the super rich. And, it's, and Downton is fucking funny as well, to be fair. Um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And it's got lots of culture war send-up stuff in there as well. And it feels, I think it hits harder than something like Downton because it's not a period piece. Like, it's very much rooted in the reality and the now. And there's something that makes it less funny and slightly more just obscene because I think it's... It, it, feels like it's more realistic it hits home i think harder um yeah great performance is really good but i I, as well you know the reason i won't watch any more of it is no indicator of its quality it's just i hated every single person in it with the exception (laughs) of uh, a certain member of the uh hotel staff and alexandra daddario's character who i would say was 
unobjectionable. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I just I didn't enjoy spending time in the company as people. I will, however, concede that that may be more of a personal failing on my part than a failing of the show. Um, but yes, it's very well put together, very written, and I definitely, definitely would say that Murray Bartlett, Farscape's Murray Bartlett, uh, is the MVP of this show. It's a shame. I would say that, that like the, the the teenage boy um, who's played by um, Fred Hessinger. Um, yeah. It, it gets a, his storyline turns out to be really sweet and 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 genuinely. I've used to use the word genuinely, really sweet and thought provoking. And it's kind of like a lovely little thing going on with him that takes a while to play out. It's it's the he's not it's, that big a bell end. Yes, I grant right, you that. Yeah, and he is, and he's mm. he's not that big a bell end from the start. But his, his story particularly, I thought was really really interesting and kind of moving. Um, it's it's it's. I have to say, it's the show that. Must not be judged. Even, I mean, I, I'm glad that you've all you commented on this. The I think the you know the writing is undeniably brilliant and the acting. But mm. it, to judge on this first episode, which has to introduce this whole cast of characters, mm. but it, sure. it's the show. I, I can't think of one show more that deserves to be seen more of and in full to be reviewed in full than this one because it's such. Uh, it's got such incredible arcs and such incredible developments that get, that, that, that take place as it goes on. The White Lotus drops on Sky Atlantic and now, as in now TV, not now, but on Monday, I'm never going to stop that joke, just so you know, on Monday, August the 16th at 9pm. And next up this week, we have Annika, which stars the incomparable Nicola Walker in what is essentially a nautical procedural in which she leads a marine murder squad pulling bodies out of the water in Scotland. Uh, this is a six-part series. It's based on the BBC4 radio drama. And as a result, we get an awful lot of narration. And Nicola spends a great deal of time talking to us, the viewer, directly, which is a different look. Terry, how did your direct conversations with Annika go? <laughs> um, so, first things first... Let me just say that I would happily spend several hours of my life watching Nicola Walker do anything. The woman could navigate the inside of a fucking crisp packet and I would be there for it. So, I, I mean, she is the most extraordinary thing about this because as you've probably just outlined, it's a um, uh, not the easiest setup in that it is a procedural with boats. So what was that Bruce Willis film um, with Sarah Jessica With Sarah Parker? Jessica Parker. Strike, oh, yes. Strike, strike, where's, strike. Where's strike four, strike, strike, strike I don't know. Is it? No, that was the, that was the porny Sky series. <laughs> so there was a brilliant film in the noughties yes. that I was I was the nineties, wasn't it? Nineties. Uh, well, let's find out a fact. You Google right. the fact. You, I'll, I'll, do, I'll look it up while you carry on. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you know, it is a very specific niche type of procedural, water-based procedural. As you say, it is based on the massively successful. Radio 4 drama, which I actually think was called Annika Stranded, um, which ran for multiple seasons. Um, and essentially, it was based on this character, Annika, who I think when it came to the drama, the radio drama, was working for the Oslo police. So what you will find in this show is that Nicola Walker has a very odd accent she does which, which i think is meant to be nordic of some description she obviously her name she's called annika strandhead um she's a detective inspector and as this opens she's essentially arrived to take over this marine homicide unit so any bad dead bad crimes including dead bodies that happen 
in Scotland's waters, she and her team are in charge of investigating. So she takes over this team. There's already tensions. There's a guy who went for a job. You know, she's the new woman in town. Um, and to add to matters, she's also a single mum to a teenager, a very stroppy teenager <laughs> she has a very difficult relationship with. Um, now, as you mentioned, there's this very, uh, I don't know, no, I won't say weird. There is a very deliberate narrative device here where Nicola Walker breaks the fourth wall and talks to you as maybe you would in a radio play but you know not always actually because the character is normally they're speaking to each other but it, it's actually more like a stage play very specifically where she literally turns to the camera and to the audience like you're sat next to her and comments on something somebody actually just said to her or on another character who's just kind of gone out of shot there's a brilliant bit where she first meets one of her team as in the opening scenes and she turns around to walk away from him. He's clearly a bit of a prick and she does this amazing eye roll to camera, doesn't even really say anything. And you, and basically, you know, she thinks you think, you know, she thinks he's a prick through this one eye roll directly at you. It's really discombobulating because we are not used to our lead characters bringing us into their confidence and that's what she's doing she's using it to actually create this weird intimacy with us i've got to tell you i didn't like it and i say fucking hats off for doing it but i'll tell you what it does it yanks you right out of the drama so you'll be in it and you're kind of with her and you're following it and there's it gets a certain pace and a certain rhythm going and then she turns to you and says something and it's like that it's like being pulled out of a spell and you're very suddenly aware that she's acting that this is scripted and obviously we know these things when we're watching telly but it it's it's a really admirable intellectual device is what i would say but from a pure dramatic point of view it entirely breaks any tension any rhythm it absolutely kind of breaks the spell of the world you're meant to be inside every time it happened i completely kind of came out of Mm. the the action i'd just been in and it was and i couldn't get used to it and i thought maybe it's because i'm not used to this as a viewer maybe by the end of the episode i'll feel different but every time it happened it was it's kind of like somebody coming up and throwing a bucket of water in your face (laughs) and then drying you off and then you go back in and you go okay we're going to keep going this time it just yanks you out for me every single time and it ruins the pacing so the tension would be built things would be building and again it would immediately stop when this happened Now, as you would expect from a Nicola Walker performance, it's the exact same kind of naturalistic style we saw in Unforgotten. There is similarities between the characters. Um, What I would say is that she is incredible because she's Nicola Walker. So she has this the beautiful nuance and edge and slight weirdness to, to her performance that we used to talk about in Unforgotten the pacing of her speech, the way she talks in front of a room full of people. She's got much more arguably of an edge in this one and she she's not always likeable. Um, but I didn't mind that. I found that really interesting. The biggest problem with it for me is that the both the writing 
And and we should say it's written by Nick Walker, who did write the radio drama. Um, Nicola also voiced that. And it's directed by Philip John, who did Downton, and Fiona Walton, who did Waterloo Road. Now, for me, the writing of this and the other performances, so this has got um, Jamie Lives in it, like people who've done kind of... uh, big-ish British stuff. So Katie Leung, who was in The Nest, Uck Whaley Roach, um, who was in Blindspot, Kate Dickey. Like, the other performances for me didn't reach the heights of Nicola Walker's. So what you have is a, a show where Nicola Walker is, like, fucking incredible and is doing her thing, and I just didn't feel like the ensemble cast around her were up to her standard and then the last bit for me is really the the action didn't work so there'd be you know foot chasers of suspects or any kind of action happening around actual police work and chasers and and all of that and it just wasn't done in a very slick way as far as I was concerned so overall I thought it was okay um and if you're coming in for Nicola Walker, you will absolutely not regret that decision. But for me, it doesn't feel like top tier procedural telly, I'm afraid to say. Striking Distance, 1993, yes. directed yes. by the excellently named Rowdy Harrington. Oh, Rowdy yeah. Harrington, yeah, legend, legend. I'm sorry, and this this is the film that should have made Sarah Jessica Parker a absolute movie megastar. Yeah, didn't happen though. Didn't happen. This 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 series, I'm fascinated because like the tone of this threw me in a big way because it's a procedural drama, but it has a an understated comedic thread all the way through it in a way that it kind of wrong footed me and i think it's amplified by the camera stuff because you have this whole and it's hard to not think of this as di fleabag but that that to camera stuff works for comedy asides and she does that there's a bit where someone gets killed and she makes a pun a terrible pun about the death to camera and then does that kind of like sort of like you know fallen face like all right fine whatever like but as if the audience hasn't laughed at it sort of thing and then early on early doors there's a misunderstanding about whose office is what and again it's just proper deadpan humor and i was like this i was like this is a comedy i'm thinking this is a i mean you know i find it difficult to tell a lot of the Mm. time but but i was thinking i think this is a comedy at heart part of it at least is a comedy and there's a bit where there's a very inspirational performance of the tempest which again has comedy undertones to it she gives us some backstory on harpoons which apparently date back to the paleolithic era again for comedy effects um but the biggest takeaway for me of the show is that her boss on the police force played by lisa aaron from game of thrones she has the single best mm. office I have ever seen in my life. It is basically it has an, an infinity pool view yeah. of the ocean with <laughs> apparently a flock of seagulls who simply perform on command and circle directly outside her window. It is glorious. And frankly, I will work on the Marine Homicide Unit if it means I get to work in that office. Not the band of flock of seagulls, we should say, but actually flock, flock of seagulls. seagulls. Yeah, because no. they're performing. It was really confusing. <laughs> flock of seagulls were performing outside her window continuously. Yes. By D, is it mm. the same location as the nest? Do you know? I wondered the same thing. I exactly mm. the same thing. I don't know. Mm. I haven't had time to check, but it really feels like it is, doesn't it? Yeah, on that that yeah. um, Scottish Scottish uh, 
coastal bit. Yeah, and that yeah. hat and that house yeah. that goes yeah. onto the, yeah, onto yeah, the yeah. Um, made, edge. Yeah. I was like, I remember an external shot in the nest that I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, it could be because it was filmed location. in Glasgow and on the River Clyde, yeah. etc. So it really could be, yeah. And and um, the home is supposed to be on the banks of Loch Lomond, etc. I mean, it is it is Fleabag does crime, and I think the confusion about the comedy, I right, it's like some people are going to really enjoy the experience of being talked to by Nicola Walker in a bit of a funny accent, right? And I, and I think it's like, I think when you decide to do this and you're, it, it, you know that some people are going to go with and others won't. I just think it's not, because it is a weird thing to have to do a Fleabag style breaking of the fourth wall in a drama. It is mostly mm. a procedural thriller. That is the genre actually, but mm. there's no way of doing to camera monologues of commenting on the action that that are not going to be inherently comedic. So you're right. So it's all like little eyebrow raised moments from Nicola Walker that she, of course, does, is brilliantly cast. She's, of course, yeah. no one else could even come close to doing this apart from maybe Phoebe Waller Bridge, you know. Um, but I think the difference is, I think the reason why it works is much easier to pull off. And uh, in in um, in Fleabag and other examples of it, of course, Miranda does it in Miranda famously before Fleabag. I mean, it's been done constantly, but I think mainly in comedies, I can't think of a drama where this happens. I may be wrong. Maybe someone will point one out. But, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Fleabag comes from her monologuing, the original play, mm. the original stage version was a, yeah. an entire monologue where she does her character and other characters, and she's constantly talking to the audience and explaining everything to the audience. And as Terry said, it's a theatrical, it's a very, very common theatrical device as well. But to see it on TV in a non-comedic form, although she is being wryly amusing and funny most of the time anyway, inherently in that stuff, it's just a bit weird. And as you say, it's so weird, coupled with the accent, then you've also got the accent. And I do think, I have to say, it's a bit of a bugbear of mine. I think generally producers and writers and directors and people who, and, and people who cast things and think about these things have to think a bit more about how off-putting and how accents weird accents do take you out of the action a lot. Mm. And in fact, I'm going to get to another example in the next show we review, <laughs> listeners. But I just kept thinking, what is the accent? As Terry said, it's a bit Norwegian. She doesn't have, just change it. She doesn't have to come from fucking Norway. She could just come from anywhere. It doesn't matter. It doesn't add anything to the story. It doesn't add anything to the show. To have Nicola Orca, who we all know is how she speaks, trying to do a bit of a weird accent. And then on top of that, she has to do the to camera stuff which is also distracting anyway. So there's like double distraction. But I kind of enjoyed it more than Terry did. I think I kind of enjoyed it. It was such a weird experience watching it that I kind of enjoyed it because it was so like <laughs> unusual and odd. But I, I definitely wasn't believing any of it for a minute. Like absolutely not. And I was constantly taken out of it. But it was because she's so loved, brilliant and likable and interesting and everything else that we've said. It's still, I still kind of enjoyed the viewing experience, if you like. But... Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just an oddity, and people and fucking accents just decide if it's really necessary to do an foreign accent for the story and for the character. Sure, but it's so often it's not that necessary, and it takes you out of it. It takes you out of the story. It takes you out of the show. Well, and I was thinking, oh my god, what what must it have been like on radio? Because yeah. with Nicola Walker on TV, she's so interesting visually as well. What she does mm. with her face and how she moves, and there's obviously. You know, it, it takes some of the pressure off speech when you have a visual medium. And I was thinking, well, if this character was the same on radio and you've just had her voice, it, the accent must have been even more yeah. kind of distracting. Yeah. And because sometimes she sounded just like herself, sometimes she sounded 
or like we've seen her in other dramas, sometimes it was properly, you know, somewhere in Europe. And other times it was like a weird, posh English. And I was like, so, and I was trying to guess and trying to work it out. Um, But yeah, I was thinking, oh my God, on radio, this must have been a nightmare. But then why make that character, to your point, I was thinking, is there something, was there something in the radio drama which meant it was vital that's where she came from. There was something about her character that was a certain way because of where she'd grown up or something like that. That was the only thing I could mm. think of because why else would you right. well, I th- make I thought that, that character? Yeah, I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking it's a, it's a kind of Scandi noir thing. So because as to mm. the point of that, the, the, yeah, as you're right, the, the incredible design of the office, of the MHU, not to be confused with the MCU, the Marine Homicide Unit, that, that the spectacular architectural joy that is that, as we've talked about, is also it's a bit Scandi noir. Like they have amazing interiors, don't they? So I was thinking maybe that's why she's doing it, just to, to kind of tap into that fashion but it is it's just weird nothing's weird annika arrives on alibi on tuesday at nine o'clock next up this week we have nine perfect strangers the adaptation of leanne moriarty's book of the same name which sees a terribly starry cast including melissa mccarthy and michael shannon head up to nicole kidman's wellness retreat for what frankly seems like a very stressful week away uh boydie did the notorious RTD have it right when he summed up this one in its novel form. Yes, he bloody did. So this is yeah, Russell T. Davis. So because I said this all came from we did a, when we did when Russell was on the podcast for It's a Sin, and we and one of the, the question was we talked about was what are the shows we're most looking forward to this year on all of television, and my pick was this show, Nine Perfect Strangers, because it's the team that gave us Big Little Lies. Yeah, and there are a few shows. Even the second series of Big Little Lies, which wasn't uh, had issues, still but I good. still I still loved it, and it was one of the most purely entertaining. Brilliantly cast. We talked about the Alexander Skarsgård storyline, which was mm. incredibly powerful. You know, every every element of A Big Little Lies I love. The murder mystery element, which, you know, gets slightly similarly to um to uh the White Lotus established being someone's died, you don't know who it is, and that really drove that narrative. But the characters I'm just back, I'm gonna stop back on about how good Big Little Lies was. But that was why <laughs> I was so and it was adapted from a Leanne Moriarty book. So I was really yeah. the whole team, the whole creative team back. This time, making it for Hulu, it's on um, Amazon Prime here, also from a Leanne Moriarty book. And then um, Russell T. Davis, totally pissed on my, whatever the phrase is. Chips. <laughs> uh, chips. By chips. pointing out that this, the novel was bad, wasn't good. So the, the Big Little Lies novel apparently was good. And then, funnily enough, I've then subsequently mentioned it to various um, colleagues of mine, people I know read lots of this type of books. I hadn't read either book. Who all, all of them agreed with Russell that the book wasn't good and was a big disappointment coming after um, Big Little Lies. And I, what I would say about the series is you can absolutely see why. So this series, so unlike, um, so by the way, we've got two series that have a lot of things in common with um, uh, the the uh, the White Lotus and this one. So yeah, both series 100%. are about hugely privileged people um, coming to some kind of retreat with a lot of wellness treatments, et cetera, and the and the, the staff and the clash between the staff and the um, and their their customers, the people staying there. Almost in the way in the kind of visuals in a way, because inevitably if you're dealing with people who want to kind of um, you know remove themselves from their urban setting and, and uh, arrive in a kind of lush you know, beautiful, calming environments. So there's lots of visual things that they have in common as well. Um, the way they use water a lot, there's lots of use of water. 
And they're both big ensembles, as you say, of starry cast. I mean, this is much starrier, as you say. Melissa McCarthy, Bobby Cannavale, Luke Evans, for heaven's sake, um, Michael Shannon, etc., etc., and Nicole Kidman. And so here we are, Nicole Kidman playing a Russian character with a really off-putting, disconcerting, half-Russian accent. Exactly the same point I'm going to make again. What? What? Why? I've now watched half of this series. I've watched four of the eight episodes. I think I'm pretty sure it's eight. Maybe it's even ten. But I've watched four episodes, right? And I'm still none the wiser as to why she has to be Russian. She could easily have been from fucking. You know, she does. She's been doing an American accent for like thirty years or whatever, and we know she's brilliant at that. She could have done her her, her native Australian accent. I would have been fine. But for some reason, so she has to be Russian. And they're, they're one of the so instead of having a big murder mystery at the beginning of this narrative that, that propels the story, the, the the equivalent here, the kind of thriller, if you like, element, which I do feel is pretty half-hearted, is that her character who runs this retreat, um, and she's it's her, her entire thing. She's that she's created this whole business. She is getting threatening text messages from someone, and she get we get the occasional flashback that that imply that she's been involved in some dodgy dealings with some dodgy, like, gangsters, maybe. And maybe that's a reason to make her Russian. But again, I remind you, there are loads of gangsters and dodgy people in America or Australia, <laughs> wherever the fuck she's going to come from. The accent is so annoying and off-putting. Anyway, beyond that, I think the main strength of the show is that cast is so good. It's so pleasurable to watch Melissa McCarthy grappling with Bobby Cannavale, who is this bellend. He's a massive bellend. She's, she's a famous writer who is having a bit of a crisis in her life because she's dropped in the first scene. She finds out that her publisher is dropping a next book, doesn't want a next book, etc. Um, Re- Regina Hall is amazing as Carmel, this character who's got a lot to do with in her personal life. And that kind of comes out as the episodes go on. She's there. She says she's there to lose weight. And um, but she seems completely healthy, but she's quite timid, and she has moment bouts of anger. She's a really interesting character. I mean, Michael Shannon, you know, I, I kind of I love him in everything he does. But also, Asha Keddy, who plays his wife, is phenomenal in this. And they have they they have a um, a a a, uh, a trauma to deal with, a family trauma to deal with, if you like, with their teenage daughter. It's, it's so it's a really interesting cast. Um, and this, and the characters are quite interesting, but the main reason to watch, I think, is that cast. And it is, if we stand back from it, like if this show had arrived, forgetting Big Little Lies and and the and forgetting the White Lotus this week, I would have been, I would have enjoyed it a lot, and I did enjoy watching it. And I, it's, it, and it is quite, you know, there's there are moments where it is also kind of has some satirical social satire towards the people involved, towards the characters involved, and there are some interesting twists and turns that happen all the way through. But I have to say. I can only compare it to Big Little Lies. I can't stop comparing it to Big Little Lies. And it is no Big Little Lies. It's just nowhere near has the narrative propulsion that that show had. And you almost wish there was a murder in the first scene, you know, to kind of propel it. Because getting threatening text messages thing doesn't feel enough to give us much weight to that storyline. And and I feel like the Nicole Kidman performance is somehow affected by this fucking accent issue that I know I'm banging on about, but it, uh, it did take me out of it. So... You know, if it was just thing in the world of prestige TV, like this massive cast, incredible setting, you know, kind of quite beautifully directed often, but it's just lacking. It's not, it's not anywhere near as good as some of, of the stuff we've seen before from these people. Or indeed this week. <laughs> or indeed this week. It's no White Lotus, that's for damn sure. Yeah. Terry. No. No, 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 no. Just no. no. Just no. Do you know what? I had a bad feeling about this. Um, I had a bad feeling. We were talking about it in the Empire office. Um, I 
the reason I had a bad feeling is because I think um, these books by this author, I think they are of a variable quality, I suppose. And I think Big Little Lies was so brilliant and had many of the same characteristics. It had the big flashy cast that we're talking about. The kind of looks amazing, building this really kind of compelling world of uh, that beautiful rich people live in and you know the immense privilege they have just to be able to live where they live and see what they see out of the window and the cars and the money and the handbags and the and making this really believable world they live within that of course has a dark underbelly underneath it um and you know co-written by david e kelly um who co-wrote this with john henry butterworth but fundamentally the story isn't as good. The characters aren't as good. I've only seen the first episode. The the writing is not a patch. Um, Nicole Kidman, who is one of the our greatest living actors, I just I can hardly watch it. I can hardly <laughs> watch this. And she's and she, you know, is this. It's it's bizarre as well because there's these flashbacks to her life before, which are just weird. And the whole setup is that, you know, she um, used to have this kind of big, high-profile, rich, successful life. And then she got shot and it made her, you know, question everything. And now she's going to take people, these awful, spoiled in some way, even though they're quite different people, and, and take them through a rebirth. And the flashbacks are really weird and quite explicit but the and i just found all the characters irritating like all of them melissa mccarthy and also sorry i'm ranting now but it's not even it's nowhere near slick enough so you've got the entire first episode is essentially a fuck ton of exposition it's like beep 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 we're just gonna back this truck full of exposition (laughs) into your living room and cob it all on the floor so there's even a bit when you first meet melissa mccarthy's character because she's in the car alone and you basically want to get up to speed on who she is and what the crack is, just like they have this dialogue where she sits and speaks to herself. Like, I lived alone for 15 years. There are moments <laughs> when you speak to yourself as a single woman. The way they have her doing it in the car is one of the clunkiest things I've ever seen, saying things that did not sound real or authentic in a way to try and help you catch up on who she is and what the score is and to try and help you understand her character. Things like that I just don't think would ever have happened in Big Little Lies. There was no easy, quick path of exposition to catch you up because we can't be asked to think of a better way to do it, quite frankly. And it is an like you know incredible, incredible cast. You've got Regina Hall over here, and you've got Michael Sh- weird, weird, weird Michael Shannon's character <laughs> over here. There, there's one bit where they're all in the room, and you're like, "This is incredible! Look at that talent! Let's hope you know something doesn't drop on that building because that is a big chunk of Hollywood right there, all in the same TV program." But it's just, I, it's weird and. Not in a good way. So you know the kind of weird tone of the undoing, which obviously we talked a lot about on this podcast. For me, it's got a similar weird tone Hmm. in that it's weird and a bit trashy almost and kind of is it taking itself seriously? We're not really sure. I didn't get on with it at all. I didn't kind of enjoy any of the characters. I didn't want to keep watching it. I didn't give a fuck about this retreat. Um, didn't care about kind of their relationships as characters. I just didn't think any bit of it was good enough. And I just think when you think about 
the performances that Nicole Kidman's put in just over the last five years, this is not this is not one of the good performances, basically. Did not like this. Did not like it. No, it's, thank you. It's nowhere near as much fun as The Undoing either, is it? I mean, no, it, no, no, uh, it's yeah. not. It, yeah. it takes itself way more yeah. seriously somehow than The Undoing. Exactly, yeah. Did you not feel like half the people felt like they were in different shows as well? Like, totally, yeah. the performances were yeah. all over the spectrum. I didn't yeah. know what was going on. Like, Bobby Cannavale in particular, I said, what show are you in? Very, very strange. And But the biggest problem with this show, frankly, for me, is they are not nine perfect strangers. Fucking one of them's a couple and three of them are related. <laughs> it's an absolute nonsense from the get-go. The title makes no sense. No thanks. Get out. You're right. And you know, the other thing about the title that really annoys me is it's a fucking, um, you know, it's an Agatha Christie title, right? <laughs> so you're completely expecting, if you haven't read the fucking book, and presumably when you bought the book, you were totally expecting this, there would be a mystery, a murder mystery who'd yeah. done it. And do you know what? It would have been fucking 10 times better if it had been a murder mystery who'd done it. Just do it. It's almost like, I think that's why it takes itself so seriously, this thing. It's almost like Leanne Moriarty has gone... Well, after, after Big Little Lies, I can't do another murder mystery thing. So I have to do something different. No, just do it. Just do the same. Stick to the formula. You know, a, 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 an ensemble of characters. The problem with this is there are loads of moments, by the way. When you said that we, when they're all together, they're all together a hell of a lot of the time. One of the mm. weird and, and slightly unbelievable things is that all these people would agree to basically becoming like a group of strangers brought together and have to have dinner fucking together every single night and have all these... And none of them leave. None of them leave. There's a bit at the beginning where you're just like, they're spoiled dicks. As soon as they've, you know, there's an influencer and she goes, they like force her to give her phone up. If that character was drawn like a proper influencer, they'd have just got in their car and driven away. There's even more they would, no one leaves bit in episode four when there's a big twist and they they all stay there again. They're all like, no, some, that is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. But there are low, and it becomes. You know what it reminded me of when when they're all standing. There's another scene where Melissa McCart they they put up this kind of like a bit of um, uh, ancient Chinese um, military thing, a kind of dummy in the middle of a room, and they all stand round and they have to take turns in kind of attacking, getting all their feelings out. The next, all these exercises remind me of like drama school exercises. It's like they're all trying to. And to your point about James about all the different types of performance, it's so true. And when mm. they're all doing these their own little bits in these scenes where they're all together having these sessions. It's literally like watching a bunch of drama students trying to outdo each other. And it really, it's like, it's, it's, you're, you're not, not only are you wasting these talents, you're actually ex- almost excruciatingly making them seem not that great a bit. Off. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I was almost too kind in saying, I still, I, but I have, I have carried on watching it. I think I probably do want to finish it because I kind of want to get to the end of what the fuck it's all about and what, you know, is there any great revelation that's going to make it worthwhile? But yeah, I mean, it has issues. Anyway, Nine Pepper Strangers comes to Amazon on Friday, August the 20th. Uh, There are some other shows out this week. There's probably only one that's definitely worth talking about, which is The Chair. Isn't that right, Boyd? Yes, The Chair. I wanted to mention The Chair. The Chair, on any other week, we would have reviewed The Chair, which is a Netflix um, uh, kind of comedy drama series. It's set in an American university. Um, It stars Sandra Oh. It's written by Amanda Peet. Amanda Peet of Studio 60 on Sunset Strip Mm. fame, etc. And she's done a a really good job, I have to say. I was really surprised by how good this was. It reminded me of The Wonder Boys, 
um, that film with and yeah. love on film set in university with yeah. Michael Douglas etc and there was no greater compliment because I fucking love the Wonder Boys and it's got that kind of wryly comedic tone and yet bit of a drama as well eccentric spoil academic types dealing with each other and Sandro comes in as the new chair of department of the of the English department I think it was I think it's really well done it's really it's Jay Duplass is in it so kind of love interest I really liked it the chair it's on Friday on Netflix other things that are happening this week uh, there is mixed ish which is an eighties prequel to Black that comes to start on Disney Plus on 18th of August. Truth Be Told Season 2 comes to Apple also uh, this week on 20th of August and probably some other things. What's up again the week? Oh, The White Lotus, I mean. The White Lotus. The White Lotus. The White Lotus. Ladhood is really good as well. Liam Williams' comedy, which oh. is on BBC One on Monday. Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you, Boyd. Thanks. Uh, well, that on that note, we are done with this week's show. Please bless us with your five-star ratings and adoringly follow us on social media at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton and at Terry underscore White. Next week, we have... Our 150th episode, a monumental landmark which we'll be celebrating in suitably lavish style. Because not only, not only will we have the 11th and final season of The Walking Dead to talk about, but it's the episode you've all been waiting for. Because C is back. That is right. The second series of the greatest of all shows lands on Apple next week. And I've already prepared a 90 minute talk on why it's the single best thing on television. And if that isn't the perfect way to punctuate Terry's penultimate episode, then I don't know what is. Pilot out.